Hello and welcome to The Curator on Monocle 24 with me, Markus Hippi. Over the next 60 minutes we'll be bringing you some of the very best interviews and reports from the past week of coverage on Monocle 24 with highlights from our studios here at Midori House and from around the world. This week, Monaco's contributing editor Andrew Muller brings us up to date on all the week's biggest stories. So we learned overall that we do need to consider the possibility that the government of Poland has lost its damn mind entirely. Plus, lifelong New Yorker Peter Goldmark discusses his new collection of haikus about the city he loves. You can't rush it or chase it, but sometimes in New York, peace will find you. All that and much, much more over the next hour here on The Curator with me, Markus Hippi. As we look back on the week that was, Monaco's contributing editor Andrew Muller recaps what we know now that we didn't seven days ago. Here is Andrew with this week's What We Learned. We learned this week of the options still available to a struggling singer who has eked sadly meagre success from Mambo's 1 through 4 and Mambo's 6 onwards. We learned that Lou Bega was one of the choices of the Polish Ministry of Defence as it booked a concert held at an airbase near Warsaw and broadcast on national television to both thank and honour soldiers who have recently been, as the official billing had it, defending the eastern border. Which, we learned, is how Polish officialdom prefers to present the wretched task of unleashing fire hoses at the terrified and freezing migrants currently being used by Belarus's ghastly president as a stick with which to poke Europe. We learned, however, or at least found it difficult to arrive at any other conclusion, that roughly the first million or so artists, like even Vanilla Ice, to whom the Polish MOD pitched the gig, found themselves otherwise occupied last weekend. How else to explain not just the presence of Lou Bega, whose lone hit occurred before a great many of the Polish soldiers staring into their phones in the audience were even born? But Jenny Berggren, out of remorseless Swedish dullards, ace of bass... Dreadful, if aptly named, trio No Mercy, best remembered for taking the premise of Peter Sarstedt's Where Do You Go To My Lovely and making it even more annoying. And for reasons genuinely surpassing understanding, Las Ketchup. We learned that Las Ketchup did not, as it turned out, take the stage. We were as disappointed as you were, as they had been quarantined on arrival. It would be preferable, if optimistic, to think on musical grounds. 
So we learned overall that we do need to consider the possibility that the government of Poland has lost its damn mind entirely, that Polish soldiers cannot rap, or at least this one can't. Poland's army may secrete in its ranks the equal of Chuck D or Kendrick Lamar, who knows. And you've learned, having listened to maybe four minutes on the bizarre dystopian spectacle of a gaudy concert by an assortment of mid-90s also-ran pop stars performing a benefit show for the soldiers of an emergent nationalist theocracy responding to a migrant crisis created by a deranged 21st century Soviet Union theme park, that you've no longer any need to sit through 29 hours or whatever of the next Adam Curtis documentary series, Happy as ever to help. Anyway... also learned something of the softer side of Australian racing drivers, as last weekend's running of Australia's premier annual motorsport event, the Bathurst 1000, was interrupted. Oh, we've got a safety car. There's a safety car. Oh, and what an Australian reason for a safety car. There's an echidna on the edge of the racetrack. Indeed, we also learned something of the awesome unflappability of the echidna, the odd yet adorable Australian spiny anteater, one of which had picked this inopportune moment to saunter across the racetrack at Mount Panorama. Can't find its way out, so we need to get these cars under control and uh, just help that little critter off the racetrack. We subsequently learned of further hazards peculiar to Australian motorsport and to Mount Panorama in particular via possibly the strangest moment of motorsport commentary ever broadcast. Adam Curtis can send the finder's fee to the usual address once he's overlaid it on that new radical song or whatever. Now, I was just detailing, Mark, in my experience here, we've seen kangaroos, we've seen horses, we've seen trees, we've seen water... We've seen bits of cars scattered from one end of the place to the other. We've never seen an echidna. We have never seen an echidna. We've seen dogs. But we have not seen an echidna on this racetrack. This place is just mad, isn't it? We've seen an albino. And you didn't believe me. No, I didn't. See? Not that hard. Regrettably, we are unable to do proper justice to the unexpectedly moving spectacle of high-octane supercars swerving suddenly at terrifying speeds to avoid hitting an echidna. We would prefer to think not just because the drivers feared for their tyres. The echidna was fine, incidentally. And... We learned that last December, during what was supposed to be locked down, a Christmas party either did or did not take place in 10 Downing Street, but if it did, it was all fine, even though if in fact it had happened, someone who hadn't even gone to it, if it did, had to be sacked once we learned of it. Let's have a brief stab of circus music. What we really learned here, to our scarcely expressible incredulity, is that there dwell among us people who did not embrace, as one of the few consolations of lockdown, the perfect excuse not to attend the office Christmas party. Weirdos. Where's that gong? For Monocle24, I'm Andrew Muller. Thanks, Andrew. 
Next up, a look back to this week's edition of Monocle on Culture. The show's host, Robert Bound, got in the festive spirit by inviting the music critic Will Hodgkinson and the broadcaster and DJ Georgie Rogers to review this year's Christmas album offerings and to separate the seasonal killer from the Yuletide filler. Although it's been said many times, many ways, Merry Christmas. Merry Christmas to you. Well, there was some reliable Christmas swaying going on around the desk here in Studio 2 to that, because it's an irresistible song, I suppose. What do we think of John Legend hitting the high notes for to, 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 to bolster Nat King Cole's endless class? To be honest with you, if you hadn't told me that John Legend, you know, I would just think this is fantastic, this is so classy, do you know yeah. what I mean? John Legend's got a certain image, but actually, you know, I thought it was beautiful. I thought it was lovely. And the, the whole album, I mean, there's a beautiful version of A Nightingale Sang in Berkeley Square. Mm. It's a song I really like. Yeah, with uh, Gloria Estefan, that one. It's Gloria Estefan, yeah. there we go. So, you know, in a way, it's a weird thing to do, to mm. take some, you know, to take, take a, a late, great singer and then, you know, without their permission, so to speak, add to it. But I was listening to these songs and I just thought with all the big orchestration and everything, it's very glamorous. You know, it sounds like a Busby Berkeley yeah. movie, Esther Williams swimming kind of thing. Yes. Do you know what I mean? It's like, it just reminded me of all... Synchronised the... Christmas swimming. Well, you know, when you, yeah, want, exactly. uh, you, know, you know, like on Boxing Day when you go and see your granny and you've like eaten too much Quality Street and you're sitting there, uh, and, you know, in the sofa and, you know... About to watch The Queen. <laughs> yeah, you're about to watch The Queen. And then it's like... I love that Will Hoskins is trademarked, exceptionally personal anecdote. You know that thing where <laughs> I need to stop talking. No, I like it. Giving like way it. too much. Yeah, but it kind yeah. of reminds me of that feeling, you know, of, of uh, you know, and especially when your granny is talking in the kitchen and they won't shut up, and you're trying to watch the telly. You know that feeling? You go, shut up! It's Paddington too. And, you know, not that my granny is, you know, God bless her, she's not around anymore. But right. that's the that's the feeling I got of that kind of old yeah. fashioned, glamorous, yeah. mainstream. So I can I can't really fault it to be honest with you. I thought this is crimbo. Brilliant. Yeah. Okay. Well said. I like it. Points to Will for the first crimbo of the crimbo, <laughs> not the last tick. Um, yeah. Georgie, it's yeah. uh, Will's re- reckoning it to be a classy affair. I like the syrupy sort of strings on it as well. Yeah, like the, definitely. Yeah. I thought, oh, this is nice with Nat just sounding resplendent in the mix of it all. And you know, it did feel festival, festive. <laughs> sorry, not festival. You know, a little choir on there and horn sections, mm. and it did have that really lush, Christmassy feeling. They also attempted Oh Holy Night. Yeah. Um, you know, Who, not, is not that, as horrible as Jesse's version. With John Legend again? No, with Callum Scott. Right. Who is Callum I don't, Scott? I don't know, but that one was a little bit musical theatre, you know, yeah. jazz hands. It does go towards that sometimes. Yeah. It goes a bit, it goes, it goes right. bit, bit jazzy, showy. Yeah. But, yeah. You know. Which so, so at points I felt it was slightly off with the whole, do you question whether it's just them in a room singing a duet? Yeah, obviously, that's not possible because Nat King Cole died a long mm. time ago. But with the John Legend track and the Gloria Estefan one, I, did, I didn't, you know, that could have been easily the, the yeah. in a room singing I, today. You yeah, know? and also because Nat King Cole was such a pure singer. So, you know, he didn't waver on the notes and everything. Yeah. You know, he really hit them. And so you have to have people who can really do it. And which John Legend, you know, whatever you say about it, he definitely can. 
And Gloria Estefan, mm. no question. I think John Legend always seems to me like quite a Christmassy character. He's always got kind of like... He's done a lot of Christmas albums. He's got a lot of Christmassy jackets, mm. I think. Oh, he's he kind loves of a, Christmas. Loves a bit of, he's loves quite it. a tinsely chap, generally, I think. John <laughs> he's, tins- yeah, he's, he's called John Legend. <laughs> yeah. That's about as camp as Christmas. Yeah, he's Tinseltown. <laughs> <laughs> that is A Sentimental Christmas. Nat King Cole and Friends, Cole Classics Reimagined. Um, we're going for the indie vibe now. His Golden Messenger... O Come All Ye Faithful um, is the name of the record. And we're going to hear Grace. That's kind of a nice, kind of like the vibe. It feels quite well put together. Yeah, I mean, oh. I've got to say, I really like this one. And I felt a bit bad about liking it. I was saying to Georgie earlier on, because, you know, it's like, <laughs> oh, I'm a middle-aged white guy. Do I have to like the folk, rocky, beardy, bluesy bloke? <laughs> but I just got to be honest with myself, I did like it. Um, You've just said crimbo, too. So Yeah, well, there you go. I've given myself away. You know, exactly. Full on dad. But um, I, I did like it, actually. Yeah. You know, I've got to say, that wasn't my favourite song. I, he did a really nice version of a Come All You Faithful, mm-hmm. which yes. is which you can kind of ruin. He also did, and I thought this was a nice touch, Hanukkah Dance, which is actually a Woody yeah. Guthrie song. And yeah. I love Hanukkah Dance. And that was really nice to have that included. Yeah. Because Hanukkah, well, it's just passed. But, you know, Hanukkah is kind of... We're in for, the zone, aren't For we? those of us who, you know... There are other seasons. There are other seasons. Yeah. It's in the season, you know. Yeah. So it was... Um, it, it was... I liked it. I mean, I, I think it's always a bit dangerous when kind of credible indie, you know, folky people yeah. go towards Christmas. But I think he pulled it off. So I personally found it... It's You know, it, it does... Actually, it's another one, funnily enough, which sits in the background very easily. Yeah. It's, there's nothing kind of that jumps out at you... You I know. can't remember. Do you remember she and him? Uh, yes, and they that, did a few. Was that M Ward, wasn't it? And Zoe Deschanel. Yes. yes. And I thought that is kind of like actually kind of enjoyable, kind of indie, kind of, yeah. but kind of, but kind of, sort of, sort of putting their cred to one side. I yeah, liked touch, it. touch of camp. Yeah, touch but, camp. Um, but, yeah, yeah, I liked it. Uh, Georgie. Yeah, I liked the um, cover of Credence Clearwater Revival, As Long As I Can See the Light. I thought that was yeah. done really nicely. I mean, I thought in theory I should really like this because of the tracks picked and stuff. At times I did feel it was a bit poor man's Bonnie Vare. Okay. And I don't know if I was fatigued by the ones that had gone before in my listening session. If we'd sort of press shuffle, if we'd, <laughs> yeah. if we'd gone against Adele, I we'd found press it a shuffle bit dreary, on this. But I know it's like, that's the point, right? It's Yeah, it's folky, indie, kind of, you know, down-tempo, mellow vibes. I kind of felt, I kind of, we kind of feel vaguely like we've come back to Nora Jones in the kind of vibe. <laughs> yeah. Right? I, it's not, not no for me. I liked yeah. moments, but yeah, it's not something Didn't I jump would... jump out to you. It's not something I would put on at okay. Christmas time. The broadcaster and DJ Georgie Rogers and music critic Will Hodgkinson in conversation with Robert Bounds for this week's edition of Monocle on Culture. Staying on a musical note now, but with a slight twist, as we look to the world of graphic design and meet the Texan trio Kruangbin, the band's otherworldly sound encompasses musical influences that range far and wide, and so it is only fitting that their posters do the same. For each pit stop on their current tour, the band has commissioned a local artist to produce a unique poster design. For this week's edition of Monocle on Design, the show's producer 
Bailey Evans caught up with Kruangbin to find out how their curatorial process works and to hear about some of their favorite designs to date. I think as a music fan and concert goer, personally, it's really special to have a commemorative item from a show that you go to that's specific to that show. My name is Laura Lee and I play bass. In the same way that you get a tour tee for the entire tour, there's something really special about having something with the date that you went to the show and having that memory attached to it. So I think it started with kind of wanting to appease that sort of music fan. But then it's also become this great art project, curation project, finding different artists to make these posters. It's very similar to me wearing a different outfit every night by a different designer, usually young and up and coming designer to kind of shout them out. This is like a cool way to give some love to the artists and then also give love to the fans at each show. Now, Laura, you serve as artistic director to this entire process, a curator of sorts who finds the artists to work with. What are you looking for in this process? What makes you think, yes, I really want to bring this artist or designer into the fold? I find them through a wide variety of ways. I might find an artist on it's nice that then find other artists through that artist to kind of go down weird rabbit holes to find people. But usually the the only question is, does it make me feel something? Which is something I learned from an old mentor, Tony Davidson, who was an awesome creative director. And obviously everything makes you feel something. But I think the point is, does it hit you in a way? It doesn't mean that it has to be a particular style. And in fact, our posters usually change quite heavily from night to night because it's not about being consistent with the types of graphics. It's just about finding something that feels meaningful and then reaching out to that person and going forth. And I've always said to these guys to make sure that they are on board for you know, what I'm feeling. So let's go over to DJ and Mark. You've been on tour for a couple of months now, so which of the designs featured have really spoken to you so far? Could you maybe give a little bit of detail for the design? Mark, let's start with you before hearing from DJ. The Santa Barbara poster. There's a lot of details, they're almost flowery. It's almost kind of like pastel. That one caught my eye because I remember seeing it when it was being passed around the WhatsApp thread. Like, oh, you know, what do you think about this art? Like, oh, this is really, really cool. Seeing it in person and like feeling it, and like the, the tooth of the, the paper and all that kind of stuff. So I really like that one a lot, so my face. The thing that I really like about any piece of artwork is how it looks up close, how kind of like wiggly the lines are, the texture, you know, like almost like it's been painted with sand. But that's not something you'd see when it's posted on social media or on the internet because those kind of details just get like aliased out or uh, noise reduction or vectorized. The upcoming tour poster for the UK and Europe is actually really special. They actually just went through a couple of rounds of edits and refining it to kind of feel like we wanted it to feel, but I think it's really special and ended up coming out really mystical in a way. Krongbin takes a long time to do a lot of things because we like to be involved so heavily in every aspect of what we do. 
And so while we aren't making these posters, and, you know, we're putting the brief out to these artists and designers, we do go through rounds of approvals for every single one. And there's a lot of dates. <laughs> so, you know, we'll be at soundcheck getting draft one of this show poster and draft five of something else. And it's an undertaking. Despite the fact that these posters come from such a range of artists and, as you said, the styles vary massively between them, there seems to be a real cadence amongst them, a real sense that they belong to this wider Krungbin universe, if you will. I mean, the visual language that you've created over the last decade in your album covers, music videos, is quite expansive, but... Going back to the beginning when you were first crafting that visual language to match what you were doing sonically, what were you drawing from or where were you looking to for inspiration? I used to do the majority of the early graphics, aside from our first album, our first full length, which was designed by Senior. Uh, he also did Capcom Winter and Spill. Those were our releases and those were all UK based. But here in the States and a lot of the um, poster work and kind of iconography is stuff that I put together with LL. And it was pulling mainly from really, really old, like airline graphics. So I would do a lot of Googling and I would find defunct airlines. <laughs> Some that aren't defunct that are still around, but have significantly changed their uh, logos or their profile or whatever. Uh, and I would generally start with that and then kind of deconstruct and then rebuild it. You know, I'm looking for inspiration visually. Usually the answer is like already there or it's a part of you. And so Krumpen means airplane. So when we were pulling from old airline references, it's like, well, that's just really pulling from our name. You know, we have a lot of kind of space themed graphics around us and it's because we're from Houston, which is a space city. That's just who, who we are and where we're from. The cows are because we record on a farm where there are cows. So it's sort of like, that is kind of our world, is this airline space cow. It's really fun to work with, you know, different artists. A lot of the artists I pull from do not make music posters. There are people that specialize in making music posters, but I'm usually finding people that do illustrations for magazines, sometimes brands, or just are artists in their own right. So when I give them the brief of like, you know, airline, space, cow, have fun. They usually, you know, get to have a good time. And now, especially because we're playing some pretty iconic venues, giving them the brief of drawing inspiration from the city or the venue has kind of added another layer. As creatives ourselves, we know the importance of feeling free and making what we make. So I think with working with other artists, you have to make sure you're giving them enough creative freedom. Yeah, we try to give like a very small list of rules and limitations. And other than that, it's up to them to find the solutions for, uh, for those parameters. I like to have some visual representation of the band. And I usually put in bold letters like can be as abstract as you feel. You know, it's not like if they don't follow the rules, we're like, ah, ah, ah. <laughs> We've created a world where if you have a beard and two similar hairstyles, it looks like crumpet. Yeah. <laughs>
if there's a cow in a space helmet, it's also probably crooked. I list a, a wide array of visual cues they can pull from. And a lot of times, they, they pull all of them. We have one upcoming for Minneapolis, and there's like Prince reference, doves crying. It's like yeah. the, the Easter eggs inside of this poster are so amazing because he really like went all the way with pulling from every single possible inspiration I gave him. <laughs> it's all about like winks to the city. There was a time when maybe we had a little bit more time before playing a show that we would try to learn, you know, a song that's from that town. That like, if you were from there, you know it. And if you weren't from there, you might, but it's almost like, hey, you know, we hear you. We're always trying to quote things. And visual quotes are also part of the uh, aesthetic of the posters. favorite moments in Crumbin history was our first show in Istanbul. Mark hinted uh, a Turkish song we knew on his guitar. We just knew it because we had this CD. This was like, I guess Spotify was in its infancy, but we had no idea if anybody would know the song. But he just kind of referenced it and the crowd went completely wild. There's this real beautiful thing. It's like music and language that you can connect with people if there's something familiar. When you can have, I don't know, uh, a Philly cheesesteak somehow in your poster in Philadelphia. I mean, that's a really bad reference, but like, <laughs> you know, something that feels familiar to those people. Like you really thought about them, even in the show poster. That's one of, you know, a hundred in the year. Those are the things that connect you with your people. Food, landmarks, music, not necessarily in that order. Wonderful. And, and finally, this project of commissioning these tour posters, as you said, is quite an undertaking. Is this process going to be a feature going forward for the band? Not going anywhere. It just takes some planning. I've advanced, I think, through the spring of next year. <laughs> The musical trio Kruangbin, they're speaking to Maylee Evans for the latest episode of Monocle on Design. Staying with the world of architecture and design for our next highlight, as we look back to this week's edition of The Urbanist, Monocle's show all about the cities we live in. For the latest episode, the team peeled open the pages of a new book called Haikus for New York City, which brings together a collection of these short poems, exploring all aspects of urban life, from landmarks to the subway and even the pandemic, and the impact it had on residents. The author is lifelong New Yorker Peter Goldmark. Peter has worn many hats throughout his career. He was the CEO and publisher of the International Herald Tribune in Paris, was a strategy consultant for foundations and more recently has worked with organizations tackling climate change. This is his first foray into the world of poetry, so it's only fitting that he wanted to honor the city that he calls home. Monaco's Carota Rabello caught up with Peter to find out more about his book, and she started by asking him what exactly is a haiku. A haiku is a traditional form of Japanese poetry of long standing. And the single binding characteristic of a haiku is it must have 17 syllables. 
in a single verse. Now, I've written a couple where there are two verses dealing with the same subject. But each verse, each unit must have exactly 17 syllables. Many haikus have a twist or a pivot at the end, which surprises the reader. So you're going along in one direction, and then suddenly in the syllables at the end, something is said or is pointed out that sort of zigs rather than zags. So there is a tradition of a little bit of a surprise and unpredictability in the haiku. And that's about the only constraint on the form is the 17 syllables. That's an absolute requirement. And in many of them, this twist or this pivot at the end that gives it a little bit of life and unpredictability. So tell me then, how did this inspiration for this particular book come about? Despite everything, it just seems like a really amazing way to honor your city. Carlotta, your statement that it was meant to honor and to celebrate New York City is true. Like many human events, which we sometimes take great credit for planning, it was an accident. I had written a couple of haikus about New York City at the beginning of COVID. I showed a couple of them to friends and the friends said, Goldmark, these are terrific. You've got to publish these. And I said, no. And things went downhill from there. They worked on me. There were chances. They said COVID. And finally, I gave in and got someone to be my agent. And pretty soon they were published. But it was honestly an accident. It was not my intention And it's not the part of my life that is central. My professional life is in public affairs. Right now, I do most of my work on climate change. I advise foundations on their strategy so that they can give their money as effectively as possible on climate change. So, Carlotta, the honest answer is it was an accident. I went to my youngest daughter then, Sandra, and said, Sandra, I've sort of been talked into publishing some haikus. Would you be willing to do a few drawings? And she said yes. So it was all sort of interesting, inspired, unplanned, step-by-step. Now, while the book, of course, touches upon these times that we're living in now, it also, you know, has quite a playful side in its own take on the city. One, of course, being the famous sentence, uh, let's maybe call it a lie, I guess, that there is a train directly behind this one, which I feel it's not just New Yorkers who share that sentiment. But I'm curious to hear from your perspective, you know, was this a way to also for you to explore New York in a different way when you sit down and you try to come up with the inspiration to write these haikus, as we said, that honor the city, to try to tick the boxes of all these elements that make the fabric of New York City beyond the pandemic, of course. I think very much so. It is meant to give the reader a sense of the breadth and the variety of experiences. It is, you didn't use the word, Carlotta, but it is meant to be mischievous in times, such as the haiku about when you're in the subway, hearing the recorded announcement, let the people get off, let the door shut. There's another train directly behind this one when the next train may be 30 minutes later. But that's just an example of one of the more mischievous one. Another mischievous one, which I like a little bit, which everybody to New York will know is, no matter how fast you walk in New York, someone always strides past you. Have you had that experience in New York? You're walking fast to get somewhere. And by George, somebody who's walking even faster sails right past you. And it feels uh, at times that each city has its own rhythm when it comes to the speed on which you should walk. I could hear there you flicking through your book. I think this is the perfect opportunity for me to ask you about some of your favorite haikus from the book. And maybe if you could read a couple out for us. Let me do this, if I might. Let me read a series of three that describe the COVID period. And then I'll read one more that the book ends with, which I think is self-explanatory. 
So here are three in a row. For those who are not familiar with haikus, there are going to be three units. Each unit is 17 syllables. Here we go. Covidiously empty streets, shutters, locks. Our old city is ill. Police, fire, sanitation, bus and subway workers, hospital staff. They became an essential nervous system after New York was born. But the city could no longer exist if our front line was not here. And the one with which the book concludes, which captures something very special for me, if I may say it myself. You can't rush it or chase it, but sometimes in New York, peace will find you. What a powerful way to end the book. You mentioned that's something quite special to you. May I ask why those words resonate so much? Because New York, for those of us who live here and for all of you who have visited it, is noisy and busy and crowded and everybody's always in a hurry and everybody's acting with intensity. And yet there are moments of silence, there are moments of peace, and there are moments when you weren't thinking about it, but suddenly peace comes and finds you. And that is part of the magic of a great city is that there are many levels of reality and experience, not just the bustle and the intensity. The author Peter Goldmark in conversation with Monaco's Carlo Tarabello for this week's edition of The Urbanist. We've just been hearing about a collection of haikus about the Big Apple, so it seems only fair that we'd take this opportunity to hand over to Monaco's Henry Ree Sheridan for this week's letter from New York. we've all been waiting for. It is time to light the tree, the red, white, and blue Christmas tree outside. Are you sure now is the time? Yes, now is the time. All right, according to my reports, I'm getting it. It's coming in now. Let's go to Fox Square, where Abby Hornacek and Lawrence Jones are standing by to flip the switch. Take it away, guys. The moment that we've been waiting for. Are you ready? All right. Three, two, On Sunday, Fox News lit a massive Christmas tree outside its headquarters in Manhattan. It's a tradition that dates all the way back to 2019. I don't know why the video of the event on the Fox Nation YouTube channel only has sound coming out of the left channel. Perhaps there was a risk that the Christmas spirit could reach critical levels if broadcast out of both channels. In any case, this year the tree was over 50 feet tall and took 21 hours to assemble. On Monday, it was still there. On Tuesday, it was still there. And for the first 15 minutes of Wednesday, it was still there. But then it wasn't there anymore. Good morning, everybody. Live from Studio M. It is Wednesday, December 8th, 2021. Normally during the Christmas season, we start the program by showing an outside shot of our all-American Christmas tree on Fox Square. But last night, shortly after midnight, somebody climbed up in the tree and lit it on fire. For Ainsley Earhart, Brian Kilmeade and Steve Doocy, 
the hosts of Fox and Friends, Fox's morning variety programme. The crime symbolised more than merely the destruction of a corporate promotional stunt thinly veiled as a gift to the public. Who sets a Christmas tree on fire? Who sets a Christmas well, tree on Well, I mean, it's fire? just part of the rampage. No city is safe, no person is safe from the subway on down. Here you are at 48th and 6th. For Brian Kilmeade, it's just part of the rampant no city is safe, no person is safe from the subway on down. From the subway on down? I didn't realise there was anything going on beneath the subway in New York City, but maybe Kilmeade knows something. I don't. But, but think about it. Who, to Ainsley's earlier point, who sets a Christmas tree on fire? It's a, it's a tree and, that unites us, that brings us together. It's about the Christmas spirit. It is about the holiday season. Uh, it's it, about Jesus. It's about Hanukkah. It is about everything that we stand for as a country. Freedom and being able to, to worship the way that you want to worship. It makes me so mad. The Fox Christmas tree was propped up by a robust metal superstructure. But even with that degree of support, could it bear the symbolic weight heaped onto it by Fox and Friends co-host Ainsley Earhart? The answer is probably. The more I looked into the history of what we now call the Christmas tree, the more I realised that its defining characteristic is its ability to absorb almost any meaning projected onto it. The Encyclopedia Britannica Online says the ancient Egyptians, Chinese and Hebrews used evergreen trees to symbolise eternal life. It also says tree worship was common among pagan Europeans. This practice survived their conversion to Christianity in the Scandinavian customs of decorating the house and barn with evergreens at the new year. This was meant to scare away the devil and be of use to birds during Christmas time. Since then, the modern Christmas tree has spread from Protestant, German-speaking Europe all over the world. The Soviet Union banned Christmas and Christmas trees after the October Revolution. But the tree survived. It was simply rebranded as the New Year Spruce. Even the star on top of the tree stayed, except now, Instead of the Star of Bethlehem, it was meant to represent the Star of the Soviet Union. As if to underline the fundamentally agnostic nature of the Christmas tree, there's even a special type of Christ-themed Christmas tree. It's called a Chrismon tree. It's decorated with explicit symbols of Christ and was invented by North American Lutherans in the 1950s. If Jesus Christ himself can have his own special type of Christmas tree, then why not the Fox Network? Well, for one, because someone burned it to the ground. I hope we put it back. I mean, I, I hope we I put it back I hope we build bigger. it back bigger right. and better. And we have another, we've got to do a Me sequel too. to the Christmas tree yes. lighting. Uh, and I just think that this is... Monocle's Henry Rhys Sheridan there for Friday's edition of the Monocle Daily. Still to come on The Curator, we meet the author Timothy Ogena to hear about his second novel, Seesaw. We head to Vancouver for a wild boar ragu recipe. And we land in Berlin to hear the story of a former airfield-turned-park that has remained striped with the runways of its past life. Stay tuned. UBS is a global financial services firm with over 150 years of heritage. Built on the unique dedication of our people, 
we bring fresh thinking and perspective to our work. We know that it takes a marriage of intelligence and heart to create lasting value for our clients. It's about having the right ideas, of course, but also about having one of the most accomplished systems and an unrivaled network of global experts. That's why at UBS, we pride ourselves on thinking smarter to make a real difference. Tune in to The Bulletin with UBS every week for the latest insights and opinions from UBS all around the world. You are with the Curator, our weekly highlight show here on Monocle 24. I am Marcus Hippi. Timothy Ogene has a catalogue of academic achievements from some of the world's most prestigious institutions. He currently lectures at Harvard University, as well as writing fiction and poetry. For last weekend's edition of Meet the Writers, Timothy told the show's host, Georgina Godwin, about his second novel, Seesaw, which tells the story of a writer plucked from obscurity in Nigeria to attend an American writing program. With a wry and light touch, Seesaw explores the world of modern academia, cultural dislocation and what happens when the two collide. Well, I think I wanted to create an alternative character that is not a typical protagonist that we encounter in contemporary African literature. There are figures like Frank everywhere. There's a little bit of Frank in me as well, you know, that individual who's trying to explore the boundaries of his imagination, who's trying to be friends with people across socioeconomic and cultural and racial divides, who's trying to push the boundaries of what it means to be a creative individual. And and then, of course, coming up against existing <laughs> narratives and existing expectations and all that and, you know, finding a way to rebel. So I just wanted to create sort of a composite picture of that, individual who, you know, in this case happens to be African. So he gets this chance, he's sent off to this this writer's programme and there, mm. he meet, there he meets this great group of people. And I just wondered if you could tell us first a little bit about Sarah Chakraborty and then about the man in the toga. Well, I think, again, both characters come from <laughs> my experience in, in academia and the creative writing world, which is, of course, I've spent most all my adult life, you know, going back and forth between um, those two spaces. Uh, you know, you pick mannerisms, you pick attitudes, you pick the way people try to position themselves. And so Frank is sort of basically trying to paint a portrait of the, the sort of characters you might encounter you know and sometimes he exaggerates you know which is of course what satire does so yeah I just wanted to bring that out and to so that we can begin to have conversations um, about how we position ourselves in relation to the worlds of academia and creative writing. I mean there's one phrase that really struck with me a writer writes and for us African writers we must write to correct centuries of colonial misrepresentations Mm. it's our duty to confront narrow-minded accounts of Africa we must make it clear that Africa Mm. is not a country until the lion learns to speak the tale will always be the hunter now of course there's a lot to be said for that but I am so pleased to see African Mm. writing in a place that is not necessarily completely consumed by race. It's, it's very important, yes. Um, we have to begin to pay attention to the aesthetic, the aesthetic side of African writing, to what contemporary writers and writers in the past have done with style and language and satire and comedy. You know, that way we, we don't reduce African writing to, you know, just some set of anthropological or sociological or political frames. Um, there's much more to African literature 
than the overt politics. I mean, the, the political is very important. I think we, we have we have to continue to push for equality, for, for inclusion and the rest of them, and, you know, fight some of the injustices that are still happening. But it's also important to pay attention to what writers themselves are doing with style and, and language. Absolutely. I mean, I'm I'm put in mind, although the books are entirely different, but for instance, Okina Braithwaite with her My Sister the Serial Killer. I mean, mm-hmm. yes, it was set in Nigeria. And yes, there were certain things that happened in it that were particularly yeah. Nigerian. But that was not a book that was really interested in coming from a, a place of racial politics. Yes. And also, well, the context of Nigeria is very also very different because, I mean, there's a lot happening there that, you know, could occupy a writer for, for centuries. Lagos itself is a whole ecosystem full of stories that need to be told. And so we have to begin to pay attention to all those strands of narrative and begin to bring them out. Now, I was really interested in, in the kind of academic speak that these writers used and, and talking about, you know, looking at the world through this post-colonial narrative. And in fact, one of the wonderful lines, and forgive me if I misquote you, is that you heard more about post-colonialism since you'd been in America than w- when you'd ever lived in it. Correct. Yeah. Yes. <laughs> that's Frank speaking, not me. <laughs> <laughs> but do you think that's true, that America's more more occupied with that than people who actually live the post-colonial life? Well, it's not just America. I think it's universities across the world where we engage the theories of post-colonial, post-colonial theory and we've studied Global South and the rest of them. And again, this is not, it's, you know, it's not a hypocrite. Um, Frank is, well, this is, that's, Frank, that's Frank speaking, not me. It's not just America, you know, it happens everywhere, you know, where sometimes you meet young academics who know a lot about post-colonial theory and the post-colonial world, but they've not really traveled in Africa or, or really know those who whose lives unfold in the post-colony. So I personally do think this is a huge problem because when you do encounter someone from, say, Liberia or the Gambia, it's important to be open-minded, to not try to force them into an existing lens of what you think the post-colonial world should look like. Mm. But I mean, for instance, when, when we're looking at the character of Baronga Akela Kabumba, who has a stick and who wears what Frank describes as a, as a toga, he is being performatively African. Yes. And I wonder if you'd just un- unpick that for us a little bit. Yes. Again, it's satire, which, of course, tries to exaggerate in order to highlight a particular point. But there, again, there's, there's, there's that, the language of authenticity. That's what Frank is trying to highlight here. We expect people to reflect our idea of what their culture should look like or so. And, and that's perpetuated by, you know, the media, Hollywood. We have a certain idea of what African culture looks like. And some folks think they should carry themselves that way or speak that way or reflect that particular expectation. But Frank is pushing back against that image because there's there's more to Africa than than the Ankara and the jollof rice. <laughs> you know? Frank is basically trying to say, well, look at Africa from a very, be more comprehensive when you talk about or, or write about Africa. The author Timothy Ogene speaking to Monocle's Georgina Godwin for last Sunday's edition of Meet the Writers. You are with the curator on Monocle 24 with me, Marcus Hippi. Next up, we turn to the latest edition of Food Neighbourhoods. This week, Alex Tung of Kitchen Table Restaurants in Vancouver shares a recipe for wild bow ragu. My name is Alex Tung. I'm the uh, culinary director of Kitchen Table Restaurant Group. We're based out of Vancouver, British Columbia, Canada. 
and we're currently nine restaurants in our restaurant group. Ask for Luigi is one of our crown jewels. It sort of changed the landscape of the Vancouver restaurant scene, in our opinion. It's just one of these little gems in this tucked away little neighborhood, which is super busy and it's got a great vibe and is sort of a favorite amongst tourists and locals alike. The recipe we're going to feature today is the Campanelli with uh, wild boar ragu. Wild boar is super popular across Italy, but specifically in Tuscany. At As for Luigi, we're not super traditional. We kind of take the ethos of how an Italian would cook here in their home in British Columbia. So it's showcasing local ingredients, but also just sort of taking the mindset of how an Italian would do it back in the homeland, but to do it here in Vancouver. So the Campanelli with wild boar ragu at As for Luigi, this recipe serves four people and the ingredients you'll need will be 500 grams of boar shoulder cut into a large dice, 50 milliliters of extra virgin olive oil, five grams of dried porcini, 50 grams of guanciale, a small yellow onion, half a celery stick, half a carrot, three cloves of garlic, a pinch of Calabrian chili flakes, kosher salt to taste, tomato paste, red wine, about 500 grams, 300 grams of San Marzano tomato, 400 grams of chicken stock, and an herb sachet of thyme, rosemary, sage, and bay leaf. To serve four people, we're suggesting 480 grams of fresh Campanelli pasta. If you do not have fresh pasta, feel free to use dried pasta or a different fresh pasta cut. But for dried pasta, we recommend about 80 grams of pasta per person. Sear the boar with the olive oil in a heavy bottom pot. Make sure it's nice and brown. Rehydrate your dry porcinis with hot water and allow it to soak for at least 15 minutes. When the boar is nice and brown in color, remove the boar from the pot. Add the guanciale into the pot. Stir frequently. You're not trying to brown the guanciale, you're just trying to break it up. And then you're just sort of cooking it to render the fat. At that point, add your mirepoix vegetables, chili and salt. Stir frequently and then just sort of sweat the vegetables out. Once the vegetables are cooked, add your tomato paste and stir frequently. At that point, deglaze the pot with the porcini and porcini water and red wine, and then cook until the alcohol is evaporated from the wine. Add chicken stock, tomatoes to the pot and bring to a boil. Once you come to a boil, pull it off the heat, add your herb sachet, and then transfer your ragu base into a braising casserole with lid. We'll braise it in a 350 degree oven for approximately four hours. Once the ragu is finished, allow it to cool and refrigerate it overnight. The next day, break up the boar meat and remove the herb sachet. So to serve the pasta dish, boil your pasta in a heavily salted pot of water. It should taste like seawater. Heat up the boar ragu in a large pot or a pan, bring to a simmer, and then adjust the seasoning to your taste. When the pasta is cooked to an al dente texture, strain it and then add it to the boar ragu. Simmer it over the medium heat and then add approximately a quarter of a cup of the pasta water and allow the ragu to absorb into the pasta. Finish with a high quality extra virgin olive oil and top generously with Pecorino Romano. And then to the fun part, what shall we drink with this boar ragu? I prefer a medium to full body red wine, though this dish traditionally starts from uh, Tuscany. I think of a Chianti Classico. Our general manager at Ask for Luigi, uh, Megan Burton-Brown, she recommends the Luigi Inaudi Dolcetto del Dogliani DOCG. This body's sort of ideal because it's got a similar structure and body to match the boar ragu. 
but also has lovely tannins and acidity to cut through the richness of the dish. So we hope you uh, enjoy making this recipe at home. Bon appetito. The chef Alex Tung for this week's edition of Food Neighbors. And finally on today's show, we visit one of Berlin's most storied open spaces, which wears its aeronautic history on its sleeve. The former airfield, now a park, has remained striped with the runways of its past life and provides residents with a unique multi-surface recreation space that was much needed during the turbulence of recent months. Madeleine Pollard brings us this week's Tall Stories. Berlin isn't known for its skyline, with broad streets, flat buildings, and only the GDR-era TV tower piercing the horizon. Wide open spaces are common to the city. The most expansive of them all is Tempelhofer Feld, a vast green park on the site of the former Tempelhof airfield. Situated between the southern districts of Tempelhof, Kreuzberg, and Neukölln, the Feld covers some 355 hectares of land, its meadows divided by two historic runways, which still bear their original arrows and signposts. One of the world's largest inner-city parks, and one of the most popular chill-out spots in the German capital, the Feld is a seemingly limitless source of sky, space and blazing sunsets. Like any notable landmark in Berlin, Tempelhofer Feld's history is murky and multi-layered. Despite the peaceful setting it now provides, its origins are military. In the 1700s, the space was used as a parade and practice ground by the army, opening up to locals for leisure time at weekends. At the beginning of the 1920s, Tempelhof Airport was built on the site, a complex that was reconstructed under the Nazis the following decade. Designed to resemble an eagle in flight, the colossal terminal building still stands today, a behemoth of National Socialist architecture. Tempelhof Airport earned its place in Cold War history books for its role in the Berlin airlift of 1948 and 1949, when the Soviets blockaded land routes into West Berlin, Western allies responded by flying 2.3 million tons of supplies into the divided city. In the following years, the airport switched from civilian to military use, until its official closure in 2008. Two years later, the space was handed over to the people of Berlin as a recreation ground. Despite the absence of planes, the old airfield is still a place of flight. Kites glide through its once busy airspace, while runners, skaters, cyclists and all manner of wheeled contraptions soar down its runways. In the summer months, barbecue smoke carries in the breeze as skylarks dart over the grassy plains and music and spoken word poetry echo into the night. Revelers bask in the sunshine, green-fingered enthusiasts dote over the community gardens and birdwatchers observe the hawks and buzzards that wheel above. On crisp autumn evenings, the sinking sun cloaks the feld in a shock of red and pink and the smell of baked bread and pastries from the surrounding bakeries lingers in the air. By far the most vibrant community on the feld are the skateboarders, rollerbladers and roller dancers that whiz across the tarmac. The park is a mainstay in the viral Instagram videos of celebrity jam skater Umi Janta, who can often be seen grooving effortlessly in brightly coloured sports shorts on cloudless days. There's an atmosphere of anything goes here. Professionals and Bambi-like newcomers share the track and disco and hip-hop blast from boomboxes for hours on end. During the pandemic, the Fell took on a whole new significance, and not just because of the vaccination centre that was set up here. The park was something of a lifeline for many Berliners in lockdown. It was a place to breathe, which lent itself naturally to social distancing, aside from a few impromptu raves. As the city lay dormant, gutted of its cultural buzz, the Fell came to life, 
strangely intimate despite its size. Of course, a piece of land as large as Stemberhofferfeld hasn't gone unnoticed by developers. In a fiercely contested referendum in 2014, Berliners voted to preserve the entire park and prohibit any kind of development. By 2019, however, opinions seemed to have shifted. In a survey commissioned by the newspaper Tagesspiegel, around two-thirds of recipients were in favour of building apartments on its edge. As Berlin's lack of affordable housing worsens, politicians are also making renewed efforts to construct carefully at the perimeter, though the city's newly elected government has agreed not to develop in the next five years. It's hard to imagine that this wide open space will remain untouched forever. For now, however, it's in the hands of the people. A place that never fails to provide perspective and lifts the heart and the mind. And that's all we've got time for on this week's edition of The Curator. The show was produced by Sam Impey and presented by me, Marcus Hippi. Join us again next week to hear some of the very best of the programmes here on Monocle 24. And thanks for listening.